Wednesday Breakfast acknowledges that we broadcast from the stolen lands of the Rwandri and Bunurong peoples of the Kulin Nation. We pay respects to their elders, past, present and emerging, and acknowledge the continued resilience of First Nation peoples in the face of ongoing colonisation and settlement. We recognise that sovereignty was never ceded and a treaty was never signed. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning. It is the 5th of February mm. and it is Wednesday breakfast and well, good morning. And in the studio we have Jess. <laughs> Jess. I was like waiting for Rob. Jess. <laughs> Edwin. And Rob. Hey, nice. Yeah, no, so he, he had to go last because he was like... It yeah, I'm like, yeah. how are we going to go through the... We'll, we'll get it right next time. We'll I will get it right next time. I thought we were both just staring at We were all... It was just... Like, <laughs> <laughs> my <speaking. laughs> We got this. We got that. There's a lot of consequences with life air, you know. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How were your weeks? Uh, pretty uneventful. Uneventful. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, on my half. So it was just work and reading up on politics. I I went to a party on Saturday night mm. and I'm still recovering. Mm. Not because not because it went crazy or anything like that. More so because I acted like the total mum and when two glasses broke, like <laughs> at separate like interval hours, I was the one like cleaning it up while the people are just kind of like, wow. Uh. So I like went home at like two o'clock in the morning, just being like. <sighs> You stayed up late, but without the, the yeah, satisfaction without the, the that comes with, with it. it. Yes, yeah, so I'm still like slowly recovering from that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You, you were the one picking up everyone's mess. Yeah. Oh, it's just, just, yeah, it's just one of those weird sort of things. Mm. And then I'm ramping back up for like another big weekend. Mm. So like this week just feels like a pit stop. Yeah, I'm kind of the same because I'm like starting to get into like the habit of waking up early. So I generally go to bed quite early as well. <laughs> and so I caught up with a friend this week and he's an amazing friend. He's got a play actually coming out soon at Theaworks called, quote, The Great Australian Play. And mm-hmm. it's all about like national identity and sort of breaking that down. It's <laughs> what <by> identity? <laughs> well, exactly. It's yeah. like it's questioning. Cool. Like. Um, what is national identity and whether it's really a good thing. It's an awesome play, um, as a small plug, but I was catching up with him on the weekend and it was only like till 9.30 that I stayed up, but that oh. was late for me. <laughs> I, I totally get you there. Yeah. It hits like maybe quarter past nine and I'm yeah. out like a light. Yeah. Really? Yeah, 5am wake-ups every day. Yeah. Really? Oh, <laughs> Honestly, my heart goes out to all of you out there waking up. Early every single morning because mm. it's a real first world problem. Well, I guess yeah. Any sort of any sort of sleep sleep schedule has to be interrupted. <laughs> yeah. Well, now that you're up early, what what do we have on the show today? Really nice, really nice little stuff. You're actually <laughs> hitting off the show, Rob. So for listeners out there, if you're wondering, last week we did have um, a Rob dominant show up until about seven forty, and then from then onwards it was just Jess and I. Went, um, that's going to be a regular thing, yeah, yeah Rob. Yeah, so unfortunately, just a quick thing. Yeah. Just a quick thing. Yeah, yeah, so I have to unfortunately duck off to work afterwards, but it means that we have lots of, still have lots of amazing content coming Yeah, through. it's going to be so. great, because you're going to, like, hit off the show, start off the show, With a bang. and then Jess and I are going to kind of, like, come in and just kind of continue for a little bit, Absolutely. finish up, Absolutely. wrap it up with a bow, <laughs> together we will gift up our show. Absolutely. Well, on the show, 
7.15, we've got a interview um, with Kamahi Jordan King. So he was speaking with 3CR at the Woodfolk Festival. Um, so he's speaking about his p- personality, his drag queen personality, Constantina Bush, um, which is really interesting. Then at 7.30, we have Mittel, uh, who is a researcher at RMIT, and she's going to be speaking about disaster resilience and what Australia can learn, particularly from... India, so mm. they had a quite a tragic earthquake earlier in the millennium, and it's about how do we respond to disasters better, mm. and so she's been doing some research on that, so that should be quite interesting. Yeah. And Rob and I both reached out to <laughs> poor, poor person, <laughs> to have both 3CR being like, come on, come on, <laughs> but, um, that means I'm like doubled excited, because I'm like, this is going to, I was going <laughs> to, <Yeah. laughs> so I'm like, this is going to be sick. That should be great. Ready for it. Um, at 7.45, we actually have uh, Professor Kinner coming on. Uh, he's going to be talking about, sorry, Professor Stuart Kinner, I should say, first name. Uh, this is going to be about some new research that's come out looking at um, health within the youth justice system. So I thought this would be good. Wednesday Breakfast has covered a few of these stories, but it's an ongoing narrative about how abysmal our youth uh, justice system is, detention facilities, blah, blah, blah. We will get further into it with this new research, mm. which hopefully will help contribute to the discussion. Right. Definitely. And then at 8 a.m. we have an, a very important update, I think, on the Tarkine region. Mm. We have from the Bob Brown Foundation, Scott Jordan, coming in, who's spoken to us before quite a few times. He's one of my favourites. Um, <laughs> updating us on it's on the actual... The logging has started in the Tarkine, so we are going to do an update on that and what our movements are from here. So... Yeah, and finally, um, we're going to have Clive Freeman coming in talking about uh, his community group or the community group he's been organising called the Indigenous Crisis Response and Recovery Group. This is Mm. one of many little community groups that have popped up after the fires that Mm. we've been seeing over the summer. But I thought it'd be really good just to, um, I don't know, give voice to the work they're doing and we might continue this as we go out throughout Mm. the year, just Mm. having a look at different community groups and different ways we can all try and recover from or support community from uh, here on out. Yeah, mm. absolutely. Well, it's another packed show. We're continuing our trend from last week of, like, <laughs> yeah. starting the year strong. So we're, good we're, we're still sustaining <laughs> energy. Um, but before we begin, we've got a song um, called No More Boomerang by Les Collins and Kath Walker. No more boomerang No more speed Civilized color bar and beer, no more crabbery, gay dance and din. Now we got the movies, pay to go in, lay down the stone axe. Take up this deal Work like a nigger For a white man's meal No more boomerang No more spear Now we all civilized Color bar and beer he finished 
Now we got instead White fella bunyip Call him red No more sharing What the hunter brings Now we work for money Listen to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was No More Boomerang by Les Collins and Kath Walker. Up next, we have, we'll be hearing from Kamahi Jordan King, who was performing at the Woodford Folk Festival in 2019. So, Kamahi is an artist, performer, and writer, and is also the creator of the personality Constantina Bush. So, in particular, he will be speaking about the Northern Territory intervention as he performs that through his drag shows. Just also a small note is that this interview does make reference to sexual abuse and pedophilia. So if you need to take a break, make a cup of tea, and we'll be back in about 15 minutes. And also lifelines available on 13, 11, 14. Here is Kamaki Kamai speaking with us. I'm here at Woodford 2019, and it is day four. Um, a slight breeze has come in today. It was much hotter yesterday. Um, and I'm sitting here on beautiful Jinnaburra country with Kamahi Jordan King, Kamahi is a singer, songwriter, actor, visual artist, and better known as one of the best showgirls on this continent, Constantina Bush. Uh, welcome, Kamahi. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Can you start by telling listeners um, just a little bit about yourself? Um, look, um, I come from Catherine. I have um, in my tribal blood, I guess there's Wanyi, um, Borrelulu country, and Lawn Hill National Park from my dad's side. On my mother's side, it's uh, Gurunji, Mudbra, Jingli. So, yeah, and I ca- I've got raised in Catherine, but I've um, accidentally found myself in performing arts at the age of 20 and just never stopped, just never stopped. I was actually going to be a visual artist, which I still do and I still am, but I wanted to really concentrate on that and, you know, get into that more. But um, I had the opportunity to get into a musical that was being written in Perth with Black Swan Theatre Company and just never looked back. It was after the brand new day era I saw that and just thought, wow, I want to do that. So um, how has Constantina Bush come to life? Well, that happened in Melbourne. Like, um, There was Out Black, which was the GLBTIQ and Sister Girls group. Um, and basically they put on a show every year and somebody pulled out in 2008 and 
Brian Andy, who was like taken over as the convener at the time, said, "Oh, have you done drag before?" I said, "No, but it's easy. I'll just mime. I mean, it's not that hard, is it?" So I had to audition for him. I auditioned and I didn't get it. Um, and then I sang live, and it just sort of took off from there. And that was when she was born in 2008 in Melbourne. Ah, oh, incredible! 2008. It's a little while ago now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, 11 years. Um, but ever since then, I've been still doing her, but um, getting better, I guess. And we became Constantina Bush and the Bushettes in 2009. Um, and we come and did the Woodford Festival. Um, since then, we've been going quite strong. I'm here solo, though, like my Bushettes have had babies since then. Um, but I got picked up by uh, Moira Finnecane for Finnecane and Smith burlesque shows for the Burlesque Hour Loves Melbourne. And I've toured quite extensively with her and her shows. Um, and now I'm back after quite a bit of a break at Woodford Festival. Now, your show is quite political, um, and there's a section in Constantina's performance where she talks about the beginnings of the um, Northern Territory intervention, and I'm sure the listeners will know a little bit about the intervention, um, but the initial justification for the intervention was made by the Indigenous Affairs Minister at the time, and you know, the Australian government was saying that there were pedophile rings that were um, operating in Aboriginal communities, um, but, yeah, there were also, you know, the Australian government was also saying, you know, that there were high rates of alcohol-related harm um, and incarceration, and they used all of these things as um, a tactic um, for justifying the implementation of the intervention. Can you speak more about why you've involved, um, yeah, talking about the anti-intervention into your performance? Look, I think the idea behind Constantina Bush is that she's able to get away with things, and, and um, in saying... Uh, political stuff in the show in an entertaining way like through jokes, comedy, singing and dancing, when I had the bushettes around, it, people tend to listen more, so they, like the messages actually get through, whereas if I was to sit up there and talk quite seriously like this about what was going on, people would hear me, but they wouldn't listen um, so with Constantina, I, th- I guess I use her as a vessel to get these really important messages across and People do think about it because they come up to me later and say you're quite clever in how you've got me to actually listen. I understand now what's going on. I've done a bit of research myself. And this is like years later, they'll say to me, hey, you're Constantina Bush. I've got to tell you something. And they'll say, you're really clever because what you did was... I never used to really listen to stuff like that, but you you made me think more. And I really, really understand now what you guys are going through. And it's not good. Like, you know, and I feel ashamed to be a part of it. And that. And me as a black fellow, like... You know, when people come up, sometimes they want to be educated in that. Like, I know it's annoying to us, but if you can take the time out to say, listen, look at it from this perspective, because a lot of people think white privilege doesn't exist because that is their privilege. They don't need to worry about the things we worry about, so they don't believe it exists. But for us, it's, um, it's a disadvantage. We should maybe just call it black disadvantage and put it that way instead of saying white privilege, and people will understand it. But to talk about things like that in my show... Um, I don't know, it helps to get the message across. And, like, a lot of people come and see it, but, like, um, all my other black friends are like, oh, but you're, you know, preaching to the converted because the mob that are going to come and see your show are a mob that will support us anyway. But there might be one or two people out there, if I can change their thinking, then they can change somebody else's thinking, and that's enough. Um, but you did also focus in your show um, on um, how Constantina was... Um saw all of like, the army folks coming into the town and that, that's actually a story that not a lot of people know about the Northern Territory intervention. Can you talk a little bit about that and also land permits as well that were revoked because of it? Yeah, so like 
in my thinking, and um, I won't back down from this, I, I believe that the Northern Territory intervention was the biggest land grab because every time blackfellas get ahead, they get knocked back a couple of steps and ten or so in this case because our land permit system was working quite well. It had to be abolished so that they could, you know, because you needed permission to come out on Aboriginal land. You just couldn't go out there looking around for minerals and stuff. So they invented this story of... Um, child molestation and to be honest with you pedophile rings and things like that happen in in the white world more than they do here like can you see any black fella trying to organize a pedophile ring or organize anything like that you know like even even um in melbourne you need to if you want to go and get a box of sudafed you've got to show your license because people are using it to make ecstasy and stuff like that but then again that's not black fellas producing these drugs all that sort of crime and that is done by white people it's not us and so it really angers me when, you know, you get looked at like you're a big drug dealer when you want to buy a box of Sudafed in Melbourne. This is what I hated about it. Um, and you had to show your ID and everything. I don't care. Like, I mean, I needed the Sudafed, and, you know. And to be honest, look at all the mob that own the chemists too. Those little boxes of Sudafed should be 4.95. Because of that, they know people are coming to buy it to make drugs. Those prices can go up to $20. And that's white people right up there at the helm. No matter what they're doing, it's, it's them, you know. So we get, here we are, sitting down, making sure everything's going good with our country, with our land permit system, so nobody can just come out and take advantage of us. Look, looking for more resources in Australia. There's not enough land. Look, what about all this Arnhem land that Aboriginal people own? All right, let's do this. Let's make up the story about them running pedophile rings, making, you know, fermenting orange juice and Vegemite in their bathtubs. What a load of shit. Um, Anyway, like that sort of stuff, we get stuck with all this bullshit. And so they did that. They abolished the land permit system. The minute they did, it was 3 a.m., me and my cousin Robbie King, um, a couple other people were standing at BP. It was 3 o'clock in the morning, and this big truck goes past. On the back, it's got these four-wheeler motorbikes with these drills capable of going probably one to two metres into the ground. And we followed it. We followed it out for 50 kilometres and it turned off the central Arnhem Highway where you need permits to go. Now, why the hell were these things going in? And this, as soon as the intervention started, all these army officers come up everywhere. There were army men everywhere. And they were there just in case there was trouble when they were sorting out all the pedophiles, quote, quote unquote pedophiles, um, in the Aboriginal communities. And, you know, like our communities, um, there are violent things that happen in that, and it always happens because of alcohol. But when people are forced, forced to drink, it's because they're living in a white world, a system that's designed for white people on their own country that they're not a part of and not allowed to be a part of. So in that, like, any person that gets left out of something that feels oppressed, that they will turn to drinking, white, black, brindle, whatever. Now, the thing is, is that nobody's acknowledging what is driving Aboriginal people to do these acts of violence and that. And to be honest with you, um, whenever anyone asks me about white privilege, I go straight back to this. I'm like, look at this. You take away someone's being, their spirit, you break their spirit, you've got an empty shell walking around. That, that emotions will rise up eventually and, you know, you'll have a violent outburst no matter what you do. So us people, as, as a people, as a human race, have been oppressed for so long, it is still going on, this intervention should not happen, but it's been extended for another 10 years. I live up in the Territory. We have mandatory sentencing. You go to jail for nothing. Everyone's, oh, the system's broken because most, every single kid in that Dondale Centre is Aboriginal at the moment. 
um, and everyone's like, the system's broken. And I read somewhere about the lady that wrote, and she researched this, the story of when they see us, those five boys that got put away by that white, um, whatever she was, and it wasn't true, they were all innocent. Um, but anyway, she said, the system is not broken, it's doing exactly what it's designed to do, and I totally agree with her. The white world that we live in today, we're not really a part of it, and we have to work twice as hard before we're noticed to be a part of it. And when we finally get there, the instant we do one little thing wrong, we just drop back down to the bottom again. You know, and I'm sick of being a bottom feeder in my own country. Like, I, my plan is that once I set up some sort of business with my art and stuff to get a bit of residual income, I'm going over where they invaded us from, like to Britain, because over there. Even though they're the country that invaded us, I felt so at home. Nobody followed me around the stores. There's black people on the commercials. And a country like that, it's just a melting pot of culture. And I just felt like a human being for once in my life. So I would move back there in an instant to just get rid of this feeling that I walk around with every day. And we don't know it because we're so staunch as blackfellas. We walk around with these walls up. You don't know they're there because that's, that's, that's your black disadvantage, like the opposite of white privilege. You actually walk there, you're used to that sort of treatment, so you don't notice it because it's the normal for us. Well, when you go overseas and you look at something else, you know, like our kids here, they're too busy looking to um, African-Americans for, oh, they're strong black people and blah, blah, blah. But when you look at America... 400 and something years ago, what was it, 1492 or 1462 or something, I don't know, um, they were colonised by white people and 400 years later, they got 200 years on us, those Native Americans are still having the same problems that we're having today. In fact, I think in some ways we're a little bit more advanced with um, the problems you have. Uh, well, well, not problems, but in dealing with that, we're, we're a little bit forward. So this intervention will knock us back again. Um, some of the things they've used in there is going to go Australia-wide soon, like the cashless debit card for anybody that's on um, Centrelink payments. So, you know, things like that. We're, we're being controlled at a level where, you know, like we're just not giving the opportunity or given the opportunity to step up and control things ourselves. There's so many of us that can do it. I mean, we make up the most smallest percent of the population, yet we're the highest population rate when it comes to incarceration. So that intervention stuff, like they're serious messages, and if you can put it in good way, um, you know, to a show and get people to listen, then you're making people aware, and that's my that's my goal through Constantina Bush. And you just managed to convey that through the power of humour, which is just so incredible. Um, can you talk about that? Well, humour, like, as, as blackfellas, like, we shouldn't be laughing at all. Like, really what's happening to, happening to us in our own country on a day-to-day basis, we should be the most sad, walking around, dismal, you know, dismayed, but we don't. We get together, we have sing-alongs, we sit around the fire, we talk, we laugh. We laugh a lot. And sometimes, you know, we laugh that loud, most of us, we get kicked out of restaurants. <laughs> you know, like, and so that is something that was instilled in me from my family, from my cousins, when they used to come around, all that stuff. So I've learned to listen to how we are, to convey how we are through my shows, using that as a, a way to get the message across, using humour. So, like, I'll make a joke about something that's quite serious, you know, like domestic violence and stuff like that. 
And um, it might rub people sometimes the wrong way because you never. You, the other thing too is you can't please everyone. And in my show, I might rub a few blackfellas the wrong way, and that's where lateral violence starts to come in because I've had quite a few nasty messages on Facebook um, from other blackfellas. But I put them in their place and show them why I'm doing what I'm doing, and then they start to agree with me and apologise. So I've only had one that's like, um, you know, held to his gun and. Yeah, blah, blah, you wait till I see you. I said, yeah, bring it on, bruss. You don't realise from my photos, but I'm actually six foot tall and bulletproof. And I can rumble. You don't think I learned to grow and fight like you did? You know, like, I'm not afraid of that. And if I ever do see him and he tries to come up and smash me, well, I'll slide him everywhere. Like, I will. Because that sort of violence, I will not have. And if it comes to me, comes at me like that, I will make it stop. No matter what I have to do. So, yeah. That's not comedy. <laughs> but, yeah. And speaking about violence, um, has Constantina ever experienced any queerphobic attacks whilst you're performing? Absolutely not, actually. Um, and this is an interesting one because I had an interview on Joy 94.9 in Melbourne a long time ago and they asked me a similar question and communities never, ever attacked me and stuff. And then this young kid rang up and he goes, oh... They aren't really that good, you know, because I try to do what you do and I get bashed all the time, but I'm smaller than you. And it made me think, because of my size, I am quite big, um, that people probably would want to, but are a bit frightened because they can see the ferocity in me, I guess. I don't know. I've got a fire behind my eyes, and she does even more so, yeah. Because with heels on, she's seven foot tall and bulletproof. Nah. <laughs> Um, and, yeah, as well as being a performer, you're also, um, you know, a uh, musician, songwriter, visual artist, um, and now you're also thinking of getting into glass blowing. <laughs> Can you tell me more about what's on the horizon? Look, um, so what I did was I, I spent some time out with my gang, um, Megan Batari, down in Canberra. and uh, well, She lives in Wyndham, which is just out of Canberra, about 160 k's out, and beautiful drive through the Great Dividing Range there to get to her. Um, she has her own studio where she does glass casting and she's part of the Canberra Glass crew. Like she, 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 um, Canberra Glass, what is it? She's got, she's got a website anyway. I went down just curious because I'm starting to get into sculpture and making camp dogs and stuff and I wanted to think about making camp dogs out of glass, which has to be casting. So I went and spent a couple of weeks with her and, um, so what I'm going to do is try and apply for some funding to, you know, get this new project underway and I want to have an exhibition called um, NT uh, Through the Looking Glass and it's glass casted products and glass blown products which I'd have to go and you know spend time at Canberra Glassworks try and get that eight week residency there um, and you know like somebody else would have to blow it because you, you can't just blow from looking and watching in one day and um but I have all these ideas that I want to do with this new exhibition and get it going around anyway, touring at least. So, yeah, that's on the horizon for me, and I will make that happen. Um, there are a few other projects. One I can't talk about that's really exciting for me, but it, um, it'll be exciting for everyone, actually. But, yeah, it really is exciting for me. It's the biggest break Constantina needs, and that's all I'm going to say. <laughs> um. Yeah, and thank you yeah, so much, Kamahi, for joining us here on 3CR. No worries. Thanks for having me, hey? You listen to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was Kamahi Jordan-King, who was performing at the Woodford Folk Festival, speaking with us on 3CR. It's coming up to 7.30, but before our next interview, we have another song called The Fool by Benny Walker. 
You're listening to 3CR Wednesday Breakfast, and that was The Fool by Benny Walker. Up next, we have an interview with Metulva Hanvati. So with the unprecedented bushfires that are happening across Australia over the past few months, we're now faced with the question, what do we do, how will we do reconstruction differently and prepare for the future? And so to help unpack this, we have Metulva Hanvati on the line, who is a lecturer and researcher from the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. And she's been suggesting that Australia could learn from the innovative approaches that India has adopted in after the 2001 earthquake, which is the nation's most second most devastating earthquake. Metal, welcome to the show. Thank you. So to start off, what happened in 2001 in India with the earthquake? What was the impact and on the country and as well as the communities over there? So 2001, India saw its second uh, most deadliest earthquake um, and first since the record began. So nearly a million homes were damaged or destroyed and 20,000 lives lost. Over 300,000 uh, people were injured, so it was massive. It uh, took the nation by surprise. Um, it happened on the Independence Day, um, and for many parts, um, many rural parts, uh, people were still emerging out of three years of drought, so this earthquake really put them uh, further back on the track to recovery. Um, so in terms of impact on communities, it was massive. And so also when we talk about disaster recovery, it is also more than just the physical infrastructure, the physical bones of the city. It's also about community building. And how do you find that community does form and grow after such events such as earthquakes or other natural disasters? So that is the hardest bit, I think, um, and great question, by the way. Um, communities do heal uh, over time, um, emotionally, psychologically, uh, but it takes a very, very long time. And research suggests that uh, if they are um, empowered and inspired to um, take charge of their own recovery, uh, that healing is much faster. Um, the collaboration, uh, talking to other um, disaster survivors, all of that helps. But then it puts a lot of uh, responsibility on government to provide that environment where collaboration happens, where people can actually take charge of their own recovery. Absolutely. And so... In India, I mean, the, what made the response by the government particularly successful in this case in comparison to, to former disaster recovery efforts? So the government was initially came up with a similar re recovery program as they had in the past, but there was a, a small um, a like a group of uh, civil society organizations in a district who were brewing some innovative approach. They developed this uh, community hubs, which they called as Setu Kendra, as in bridging centers. And through these hubs, they influenced the government to change their recovery program. And from being uh, government-driven, it uh, became owner-driven. So this is the first time global in, in, uh, throughout the world that uh, owner-driven reconstruction program was adopted at such a massive scale. Like imagine one million homes to be rebuilt. 
and um, yeah, it it became a massive success. And so, what were some so, of the other unexpected benefits from this approach? So, uh, typically, a participatory approach is seen to take much longer time and uh, human resource and financial support, but. Um, uh, contrary to that, this owner-driven reconstruction led to a speedy recovery, most um, 90% of homes were rebuilt within two years after the disaster, and the satisfaction rate of communities was massive, so it was claimed as a massive success even by UN, and they, uh, the government uh, got the UN Sasakawa Award for that, uh, their recovery. Yeah, great. So some of the some of the unexpected um, outcomes, as you asked, was that um, it is actually counterintuitive. Participatory processes um, work in favor. And I have, in terms of like, obviously they're they're great for the satisfaction with the community. How also how effective are the bridging hubs in helping communities also coordinate themselves after such disasters? So uh, fantastic. Uh, the coordination hub is one of the greatest innovation um, I have come across, and the way it was set up was. Um, Informally, local uh, civil society organizations brought um, engineers, um, architects, so people from built environment profession, lawyers, um, uh, people with understanding of economics, and uh, someone with policy background, and a community leader. They all came together um, informally to begin with and started going from door to door surveying who has damaged what, and they started collecting all this data. They had a massive data set, and uh, it just evolved as it went. They started having meetings on a weekly basis with community. Later on, it became maybe fortnightly. Because of this data set, the local government suddenly became very interested community could know what what all recovery programs existed, uh, which direction they should go to. Um, they also got information which they trusted. So then it, it had this full factor that everyone in that uh, locality actually went to this hub for any or every information or any concern. And this is the, it became a conduit towards to state government for informing policy changes, as well as um, it helped community to come together, share their grief, um, and feel supported. So yes, this hub played a significant role in community recovery. So these hubs were then trialed in 2008 uh, formally. So government established these hubs for every uh, 4,000 homes or so in Bihar. And so I imagine that as these hubs, they kind of evolve and they grow and they start to sort of take their own life and take their own identity. How did these hubs then sort of start to coordinate with each other, forming a network? Um, So... In Gujarat, like in 2001, uh, it wasn't a coordinated, formalized approach. It was informally set up only in this small locality, in, a, in one district, and that's about it. So 
So, and because it was a group of civil society organizations coordinating it, they mainly managed the process of coordination. Um, UNDP also helped a little bit uh, in, in, in this um, coordination. But in Bihar, the state government um, took charge of coordination in partnership with local civil society organizations and academics. Great. And so with all these lessons from this example in India, what are some of the key lessons that we could start to learn here in Australia and start to use? Um, uh, that's that's fantastic uh, question. And there's no direct um, translation. It's um, The first thing is that we need government goodwill and uh, at certain some at state level, we see some, uh, we see that exists. Um, but then also partnership and collaboration with those who have been working in this area, as well as uh, universities, uh, that could play a massive role um, in developing a community-based recovery program. So that's the very first thing. And second is how... Uh, and what would work to inspire communities to uh, rebuild in a way that makes them safer in future. And that has to be a collaborative process. Community may want to uh, rebuild their homes faster, but then if it's a collaborative approach where such hubs are developed and, say, local school groups or um uh, community councils, they could uh, come together with professionals, researchers, and inform what is best in the long term uh, and make decisions. That would be great. And third is technical support. So a lot needs to be done there as well. Um, uh, for example, in India, demonstration homes were built uh, at a smaller scale they were put to test in front of people, um, uh, as in earthquake test, and people could see that um, uh, if you build like this, it is not going to survive. If you build the other, just by minor changes, it is going to survive uh, massive earthquakes. So similarly, I'm sure there are researchers who have done work in this area, but then there is uh, these videos can be posted on on the recovery agency's uh, web page, and people could see and they would know that it would cost this much. So just having that um, um, op- uh, broad understanding and giving people a clear uh, picture of um, what they could achieve out of how much expense would be useful. Well, thank you, Metzl, for sharing your your thoughts and lessons about what Australia can do moving forward, particularly with the rest of this year and many years moving forward. Thanks very much for coming on. Thanks, Rob. Thanks for the opportunity. That was Metzl Vahanvati, who is a lecturer and researcher at the Centre for Urban Research at RMIT University. Up next, we have another song. It's called Bright Lights, Big City by East Journey.
Okay, for our next interview, we'll be looking further into the issue of health in the youth justice system. Uh, we've done some stories on uh, this in the past, especially in Australia, and how detention centres are failing our youth, whether it's, for example, the tenfold overrepresentation of young Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the criminal detention centre system, uh, which is results of a racially charged justice system, or 2017's Four Corners report, or even Victoria's lack of rehabilitation um, uh, programs often forcing juveniles into standalone sentencing. So there's a whole bunch of issues around this topic, but they were actually looking at a global review from researchers from Uni of Melbourne, the Murdoch uh, Children's Research Institute, and the University of Sheffield, which have combined to kind of delve further into the health of young people in detention and the health and social factors that can increase the likelihood that um, young people might end up in these facilities. We have Professor Stuart Kinner on the line to tell us a bit more about this research. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me. No problem. So, um, Stuart, just checking, we have two papers that really kind of came out. The first is a global review looking at the overall health of adolescents in detention, and the second is a concurrent paper looking at factors that can increase risk for young people to be exposed to the criminal justice system. Could you kind of tell us about how these two papers came about and why, especially the, this idea of a global review? Sure. So, uh, look, my group has done research on the health of people who experience incarceration for well over a decade now. So we know that adults who move through prisons are characterised by very poor health. We know that although there are health services in prisons, a lot of people experience really poor health outcomes after they get out of prison. But what we became aware of um, in recent years is that there's a striking lack of evidence about the health of kids who end up in youth detention. Uh, so we undertook to review that evidence, such as it is, and originally, in fact, we were hoping to review three things. The first is what we know about the health drivers of kids ending up in detention, which mm-hmm. is the first paper you mentioned. The second is uh, about the health of kids in detention, which is the second paper you mentioned. The third one that we wanted to look at, in fact, is what we know about the health of kids after they come out of detention. And it turned out there was so little information out there that it wasn't worth undertaking that review, which is an important lesson in itself. Mm, absolutely. So that might, might be the next piece of research. Um, can you tell us what the main findings from this, this research has been in regards to, uh, yeah, the consequences of health and detention? for young people. Sure. So I guess the two points, the key points from the paper about drivers of kids ending up in detention is that we know now from this global review that um, the having poor health, being socially and economically disadvantaged, having learning and neurodevelopmental disabilities um, are all drivers of detention. So in other words, it's the kids with the most challenging health needs uh, and the most vulnerable and disadvantaged kids who are most likely to end up in detention. So that's the first lesson. And the second one, not surprisingly, follows that when you look at kids who are in detention, they often, in fact, usually have multiple complex health problems. Mm. And what that means is that we need um, not just to have adequate health care in detention settings around the world, we need to have better health care in detention than we do in the community because the health needs are greater in detention than in the community. Um, now, that might sound all very trite and obvious. The problem is that in Australia and, in fact, in many countries around the world, mm. we know almost nothing publicly about the scope or the quality of health care in detention. Absolutely, and you bring up kind of where my next question was going because from the research that I was reading, it does sound like 
vulnerable kids go into detention, they're not getting any better, and it's the problem with the system and how they kind of care and attend to their needs that really needs to be improved. So I suppose would this look like funding? Would this look like greater programs and services? Um, And seeing as this research was done from kind of more, let's say, um, like, more like America, England, those sorts of peer-reported reviews and stuff like that. Uh, is there any gaps in the information that we've got? Do we need to be looking at more like developing countries and that sort of systems? Sure. There's a, a bunch of really important questions there, and thank you Sorry. for that. Um, <laughs> Look, the, the first thing I would say is that the, the purpose of these reviews is not to have a go at youth detention mm. or at the people who work in youth detention settings. There are many exceptional people who are very passionate about the well-being of young people who work in those settings. Mm-hmm. But what we have is not bad people working in those settings or, in fact, bad people in detention in those settings, typically. Of course, yeah. What mm. we have is a system that's not appropriately equipped or informed to do what it needs to do. One of the first problems is that we don't know. Um, so as mm. I said before, if you said to me, what's, what's the scope of health services for kids in detention in Australia? Unfortunately, the answer is nobody knows publicly. Obviously, governments that fund those services know, but there's no public information about that. The reason that's a problem is that we do have that sort of information in the community, and appropriately so, because mm. the government is spending our taxpayer dollars to provide health care in the community. So why, when the government's paying... Um, with our taxpayer dollars for healthcare and detention, do we not have the same level of accountability? So the first thing we need is data, information, so that we can assess how well we're currently doing. The second thing we need is more evidence about how to improve what we're doing and how we're going at the moment. And as I mentioned before, one of the key problems Mm. is that we know almost nothing about the health of kids who have been in detention in the past. Um, so we're we're undertaking some research at the moment to try to fill some of those gaps. Mm. Uh, researchers always say you need more information, but forget about the research. We need the government to uh, start routinely monitoring, monitoring and reporting on both the health of kids in detention and the health services being delivered in those settings. And again, I'm not saying that they're currently bad. I'm saying that we currently don't know, and that is a problem. Always scope for improvement. Um, Another point that I thought was brought up really interesting was uh, the importance of preventative care and access in the community, and the following example might help contextualise this. The paper references, for example, uh, illicit substance use, which is something that a lot of um, youth youth in detention centres are kind of high rates of um, illicit substance use. And the the point the paper was making, sorry to refer this back to you, was by definition this involves illegal behaviours and so is criminalised. And if we shifted our perception to recognise substance abuse as a health issue rather than a criminal justice issue, we increase access to developmentally appropriate harm reduction rather than immediate criminalisation, which is a key driver of people into these systems. Could you kind of break down this idea or extend on this idea of how important perceptions are that we could shift as well within, within this matter? Absolutely. I mean, there's, there's really two points there. One is, as mm. you've um, alluded to, we really can and should, and the evidence is clear on this, we should be investing a lot more in prevention and a lot more in community-based responses to young people with unmet health needs, including substance-related health needs, mm-hmm. and not criminalising substance use, not criminalising mental illness, not criminalising homelessness, mm. um, and not criminalising um, uh, 
uh, our first Australians, for example. Mm. Um, so that's, that's one of the things we need to do. And part of, of um, enabling governments to do that is to change public perceptions. And one of the things that we've been trying really hard to do is move away from this terrible phrasing of young offenders, um, mm. which is the, the, the language that the system uses. What we see in, in youth detention typically, not always, but typically, is highly vulnerable young people who've often experienced a lifetime of trauma and disadvantage, often young people with language um, and neurodevelopmental disabilities, young people um, who've been unstably housed, who have educational difficulties. Uh, and it's, we know now that it's those things that have led those young people to be in detention, and yet we characterise them as young offenders and try to get them to address their offending needs. Now, uh, I think that's a bit of a travesty. Uh, um, and if I may elaborate just briefly, the UN late last year uh, released uh, its global study on children deprived of liberty, and our group um, contributed a chapter on health that report mm. and so now the UN globally is calling for increased efforts in accordance with their international human rights obligations to do more to keep young people out of youth detention and meet their needs in a more appropriate way in the community. In Australia one mm. key way of doing that is to increase the minimum age of criminal responsibility from 10 where it currently sits mm -hmm. to at least 14. Look, I'm so glad you brought up those two because it kind of flows on. Uh, obviously, the, the issues you've just referenced really come up um, dominantly in the second paper, which is Health Deprimants of Adolescent Criminalisation, which kind of looks at how developmental issues combine with social conditions and economic disadvantage to, to create this, this cocktail almost that people go through. Um, I also wanted to ask you more about as you say, this language and this use of language and the importance of the language, as a word used a lot in the report is entrenched disadvantage, which, which to me is uh, a little vague. It's very clinical when discussing very real experiences that people can go through. And it can, for example, as you say, essentialise and, and implicitly racialise certain young people in their communities as disadvantage, rather than shifting the frame to talk about, for example, how black and brown kids are systemically targeted for policing and imprisonment. Do you think there is space for this research or for further research to look at the systems and cultures that are pushing these groups into this risk zone, the, the, the systems behind them that are creating the social conditions to criminalise them? Absolutely. We certainly need to look at that. Look, and we know that, um, again, although within the criminal justice system, there are many people who have all the right motivations, who are very passionate about doing the best for young people. Mm. We do, as you've alluded to, have systems that unfortunately tend to criminalise mm -hmm. um, certain groups in society, tragically including um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people. And uh, so uh, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander young people in Australia are 17 times more likely mm. to be under youth justice supervision and 23 times more likely to be in youth detention than are non-Indigenous young kids. Um, now, there is no way anybody could argue that that's not uh, structural racism at play. Excellent. Well, thank you so much. Thank you so much for kind of coming on and discussing it. Uh, I suppose the main takeaway from this is really, as you said, transparency and more information. Uh, and I hope this research kickstarts a whole bunch more. And yeah, you can really build up. We can build up basically how we improve these systems. Um, now, we'll both have both reports available on Lancet, uh, which we'll put in our rundown. That's where you're hosting the papers at the moment. Is that correct? So That's Lancet. correct. So in, in the Lancet Public Health mm -hmm. um, and one is in the Lancet Child and Adolescent Health. So oh. those papers are now available online. And mm -hmm. if anybody uh, wishes to get them and can't find them, you can Google my name, 
email me. I'm very happy to send them to people directly. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. Um, before I um, close up the interview, I always like to ask with kind of research papers, was there anything that you thought was a main takeaway that the audience really should know about with this paper? The main takeaway is that um, kids in youth detention don't have a health problem. It's normal for kids in youth detention to have multiple health problems, and those are not problems for youth detention. They're problems for our community. These are our most vulnerable young kids, and we have an obligation to meet their needs in a way that's respectful, compassionate, and achieves better outcomes for everyone. We've got a lot to do, but there's a lot that we can do better already. Well, thank you so much, Stuart, for those words. it is eight o'clock we just had an interview and then we had a song called rainy day by the desert rain band which was kind of cool and yeah next interview so now we'll be talking to scott jordan from the bob brown foundation about the current situation in the tarkin forest region in tasmania so the bob brown foundation aims to protect various land environments wildlife and marine ecosystems in tasmania and around australia and the wider region 
So the Bob Brown Foundation has worked tirelessly to protect the nation's largest temperate forest, the Tarkin, from logging. But now, as Sustainable Timbers Tasmania prepares to log the Tarkin and unfortunately has begun logging the Tarkin, Tarkin defenders are currently standing around, uh, standing their ground in the Kew River area in the Tarkin. The campaign by the Bob Brown Foundation has been defending the area since 2017 and continues to camp at the Sumac Ridge while continuing to defend against the logging um, in a tweet yesterday, and it's been broadcasted to the wider community now, but six Tarkeen defenders were charged after defending the rainforest trees on public land from the logging. But sadly, the ancient rainforests are now being logged in the Kew River area after the two days of defiant protests and delays. Good morning, Scott. How are you? Uh, good morning. Um, we're we're um, waking up again at, at Sumac Ridge and getting the news in from this morning's actions at, at Kew River. And um, good, good spirits, but but um, devastating to see these forests being filled. Yeah, it, it's really heartbreaking. Like I, when I saw, I must admit, when I saw it, it's and what was happening, it's brought some tears to my eyes. So, um, can you give us a quick update on the situation and what's happening today? Well, we've we've been on alert for the um, the rainforest in in various parts of the Tarkine, including you know the, the sumac where we've held our camp for a couple of years now, and we've um, been been running operations into the Kew River area where where we've believed logging was imminent, and um, indications um, were that 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 was likely to to happen this week, and so we moved a crew in there uh, over the weekend and and set up some tree sits and. Uh, so far, we've had um, you know, the loggers arrived uh, you know, early in the morning with a with a large police escort, mm-hmm. and um, we've we've had a number of activists standing in defence of those forests arrested, and we've we've had uh, a bunch of others um, charged and, and given orders not to return to the area, mm-hmm. and um, we we continue to have volunteers putting up their hand and, and joining us to um, to to. Um, Keep entering that site and, and disrupting. And so this morning we've had two um, two brave defenders um, go in and um, uh, you know attach themselves onto some of the machinery that would be used to, to tear down these beautiful forests. Mm. And um, at this point, the um, it, it looks like the police have arrived and, and are proceeding to remove those people. And, and um, uh, if run through to form, they'll, they'll be arrested. Um, at some point this morning. Yeah, well, it's great to see people continuing continuing this, you know, really brave sort of initiative to save this region. Um, Do you know exactly how much and what areas the contractors will be logging? Well, it's very unclear. There's there's very mixed messages. The company is saying they're going to take 60 trees from the area. Mm -hmm. Um, Sustainable Timbers Tasmania, the state government logging agency, is has responded through correspondence we've sent to them and said there's 100 trees to go from this area. Mm-hmm. But the reality is there's 54 hectares with some 25,000 trees um, available in this particular um, coop plan. Um, outside of that, there is uh, 54 coops across the Tarkine in the three-year plan for the area. And so this is, I guess, another beachhead we're seeing into into these rainforests. Um, mm-hmm. The, the contractors and, and the company that's, that's taking the timber will like us to believe that it's 60 trees and it doesn't matter. 60 trees is a lot of trees, um, particularly in a really sensitive rainforest. Mm. But the reality is it's 
it's not 60 trees, it's 1,800 hectares across 54 coops in the next three years. And so um, none of that is acceptable. And, and so our people are, are determined to make sure these rainforests stand. And, and, and Kew River, frankly, is, is amongst the best of it. Yeah, definitely. And I just want to take a step back there. So obviously the contract, are the contractors actually obliged to tell you what they are taking or is there, do they have that responsibility or is it just they can give you, give you any sort of numbers? Like how does that work with you guys trying to communicate with them? Well, the, the contractor has given those statements to the media okay. and, and to us they just don't stack up. I mean, it's, um, the, the coup plan details that they can go in in a couple of phases. And so it might, might be they only want to take, you know, um, 60 or 100 trees out this week. Mm. But, but phase two then starts and they go back and take more. And then, you know, before it's all gone, mm. this is, this is not a plan for 100 trees. It's a plan for 54 hectares in that particular coop. Mm. And so it's very misleading and, and they're playing, um, a, a very selective game with information they're putting out. Yeah. Um, we will note too that this area was, was listed on a contingency coop, which um, means that it was only meant to be accessed if they were unable to get other forests that were in the in the three year schedule. Um, now, the, we, we suspect there's a lot of coops on the contingency coop that they actually intend on logging, but the way the the framework works for having reporting in the plan is that um, when you put it on a contingency coop, you're not required to disclose the amount of logs that are coming out or, or the, the breakdown between chip logs and saw logs and, and veneer logs. Um, whereas if it's in a, enlisted in the schedule in the years one, two or three, they must disclose that. And so we, we think very um, strongly that, that they're deliberately putting coops into the contingency plan, knowing that they're definitely going to log them, but not wanting to disclose the information that is normally available. Definitely. And it's sort of, are you sort of advocating towards the government to sort of... I know you are also advocating also for the government for other things, which we'll get to in a sec, but for these coops and how they're going around it sort of in a in the most legal way that they can to save themselves from getting in into any more trouble, do you, are you sort of lobbying to sort of stop this? Is there any sort of action towards, you know, stopping these big businesses from, you know, getting around the system and going through it like illegal means by the most legal way that they can? Well, look, yeah, we, we've been lobbying for a long time, both mm-hmm. the state government and the federal government, and putting putting pressure on them. Um, we've, we've been, you know, operating in the markets to alert people that if they're buying timber from from these companies that are involved in the logging of these areas, in this case, Britain Timbers, but often, you know, Taran and, and you know, of course, the wood, wood chip customers that take the majority of the timber that comes out of our rainforest. Mm. Um, we, we've been lobbying to have that stopped. And in this age of climate emergency, mm. um, we simply can't afford to be logging these forests. Mm. Um, our, our wet eucalypt forests in southeastern Australia, including Tasmania, and our rainforests are amongst the most carbon-dense forests on the planet. Um, the IPCC report um, reported that what, if we were to stay below our, our warming targets and, and avoid dangerous um, runaway climate change, we we need to not only um, move move out of uh, fossil fuels, but we actually need to stop logging our primary forests immediately, and we need to work rapidly to restore degraded forests. And um, and so the imperative is there that you know while um, while Australia is in this crisis at the moment, and we, we're feeling the, you know, the, I guess the, the hard edge of this global crisis that we're you know, uh, now in, um, we have a government that seems hell bent on just making it worse. 
Yeah, definitely. And I'm, we did see that Bob Brown was at the climate emergency rally um, at Parliament House in Canberra with a few others, um, Johnny Huckle and farmers for the climate action, um, all demanding to declare a climate emergency. You also brought out the statement to, to the Tasmanian Premier to immediately intervene um, in this logging in the talking, um, and that that would show real leadership. Have you heard anything from the Premier at all in the last few days? No, look, unfortunately we haven't. We've, we've got silence. Um, the Premier's newly come to the job and he, he you know, took the step of um, creating a climate or recreating a climate change ministry that had been absent under the previous uh, Premier and he's, he's put himself into that role as you know, being Premier and, and Minister for Climate Change. Well, well here's his test. You know, right now, the solution for Tasmania in terms of climate change, we don't have a coal power station in Tasmania. The solution in front of him is to end native forest logging and, and he could do that if, if you simply find the courage. Definitely and do you think that was sort of like a predicted sort of result after he stood up to his premiership or is that, is that what you guys are, obviously you're hopeful for that but realistically do you think that's going to be something that can be changed soon or well, how long do you think this is going to take? Well it, it could be changed soon the reality is we, we already subsidised jobs in this industry for um, at a higher rate than the, the wages that are paid out. It, mm. It's an enormous amount of public subsidy. And so um, when people talk about how we would transition those workers, the reality is we're paying the industry more than these wages are worth. We could pay the wage. In fact, we could give them a pay rise mm. and a guaranteed job um, in restoration forestry, actually doing that, that restoration that the IPC says we have to do to the integrated forest. We can actually guarantee them employment in that with a pay rise and still save the state coffers money. It's, it's a farcical situation that these forests are falling for no economic sense and, and to the detriment of the planet. Definitely with all these climate emergency actions happening and all these things happening around the country with bushfires and flooding and the logging that is continuing in, in Tasmania and that has begun, um, there are so many different paths that our government can go down and I'm, you, you guys at the Bob Brown Foundation are obviously lobbying that <laughs> every, every day. Um, so you're, there were and are people continuing to get charged. Um, are there any other steps that you'll be taking that you think at the moment today for um, this logging or are you guys just going to be standing strong or is it hard to get into the area for anyone there that wants to try and get in there what would you recommend look if, if people are wanting to join us and, and certainly we need people right now um, um, they can they can contact uh, the Bob Brown Foundation they can contact me at scott at bobbrown.org.au um, and we'll organise to get them into uh, one of the camps um, we're on high alert at Sumac as well as the, the Q Road um, scenario. So we, we're, we're getting people into to both camps and moving people between them as, um, as needed. Um, we, we have a tree set up in the Sumac area and we have rolling actions in Q River where there's a, a security presence on site that means it's, it is somewhat difficult to get in there, but we have been pulling it off. And, and the, you know, the plan is to, to continue to keep pressure on this and to physically be in the way of um, any trees, more trees coming down. Mm, great, definitely. And I think from 3CR, I think we all just want to say thank you so much for all of your efforts down there. I wish, I know that I, I wish that I could be down there helping you guys out, but thank you for coming on the show today, Scott. No worries. And look, and thank you to, to the 3CR listeners who have over many years been incredibly supportive of our campaign. Thanks, Scott. 
The rated tussock is an noxious weed that has impacted our farmlands and environment across Victoria. Similar in appearance to many native tussock grasses, serrated tussock may go unnoticed in both pastures and native grasslands for many years. Victorian Serrated Tussock Working Party has assisted hundreds of landholders to control this noxious weed and they can assist you by offering a wide range of information and management options for controlling this weed of national significance. Visit serratedtussock.com for more information. A 3CR supporter. Hi, I'm Jacob from the Friday Rave and I'm also on 3CR's Committee of Management. Now, the community of passionate people that founded 3CR a long time ago made some tough decisions. For a start, they committed themselves and a growing community of listeners to back their vision of owning our station and in doing so remaining independent of the government and corporate influence. They did this by fundraising, brick by brick, with working bees, door knocks, on-air drives and all the rest of it. You've all been there. Now, their commitment has kept 3CR on air for over 40 years. That's a long time even in my life. But now, we need your commitment to keep this great thing going. Now, you can subscribe online at 3cr.org.au or phone us at the station on 94198377 or even stop me on the bloody street if you see me at some rally or other and ask me for a membership form. You need to become a member of Melbourne Radical Radio and subscribe. All right, and the time is 8.17 into our final interview for today. So after the fires, a bunch of community groups have popped out um, of the devastation, helping out wherever they can. And there's quite a few different groups doing important work, but today I wanted to focus in on one, which is the Indigenous Crisis Response and Recovery, which is an organisation that responds to the crisis needs of Indigenous people Australia-wide, in particular the 2020 bushfire crisis, which is obviously when now, is now so fresh in our minds. Um, as a community-based Indigenous corporation, this space has come from the needs on the ground, the vital service delivery for people affected by tragic events. So we have Clive Freeman on the air this morning. Good morning, Clive. Good morning. To tell us a little bit more, Clive, um, obviously how did um, ICRR come about? So the um, Indigenous Crisis Response and Recovery Aboriginal Corporation mm-hmm. came about from a group of... Um, affected Aboriginal community members that were on the ground just responding to uh, a a lack of services that were there Mm -hmm. um, and a lack of coordinated approaches to getting the um, services and equipment and resources necessary for the Indigenous community that were greatly affected in the south of New South Wales. And obviously within um, functioning after these fires, what has been the group's approach to responding and helping communities? So the Indigenous Crisis um, Space has um, pulled together a group of people, volunteers in the community, Indigenous elders, um, to really just focus it on meeting with people affected, making lists, connecting in with philanthropists and very generous people, pulling the the, uh, needs list together Mm -hmm. and then allocating the resources back on the ground. So it's been a a back-and-forward approach. We um, got some philanthropists to uh, donate us a bus, so it's a a hired bus at the moment, Mm -hmm. and we're driving the people that have lost vehicles um, to and from the the centralised 
sort of space in Batemans Bay and, you know, they can connect in with um, all of the resources that are available there, the Red Cross, gotcha. the Salvation Army. Um, yeah, so it's been been a really full-on time for us. Absolutely. <laughs> I have yeah. to say, it's interesting because it sounds like um, half of this, half of the work of the IACR um, is just information collecting and then connecting services. Um, from looking at the Facebook page that you guys have set up, there seems to be a range of different kind of fundraising or community community support things that you're going from, like um, GoFundMe's to events to information and directories. Um, I suppose within responding to the needs of the community, what, what have you found works? Have it, do all these kind of different types work? Like what, what's been best? Um, I think what's been what's been absolutely amazing is the generosity of of the just general public. Mm. Um, you know, but with that generosity comes the need to facilitate that directly to the people in need. So mm-hmm. it's basically um, going into the communities, gathering up that information, gathering that resource, fully understanding what it is that the community are actually in need of, and then responding to that directly. So it's a uh, a personalised, direct approach, and at that grassroots level. So we just responded in a way that um, we would normally do that. So our cultural um, laws, Aboriginal cultural laws, mm-hmm. the foundation of that is no one will go hungry and no one will go without a bed. So from that sort of foundation of, of our cultural being, we built the enterprise out of that <clears throat> Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's it's a, so important that as you mentioned, this is grassroots, is community directly, which it creates this lovely sense of accountability and just yeah, support. Uh, in contrast, again, to what the government's doing with this kind of more blanket solutions, not listening to community. Could I kind of get your your opinion on like you know where the government's going wrong with what they're what they're trying to do? Well, um, we're connected with the government now. Mm-hmm. Um, we're, we're basically gathering that information. We're feeding it back into a central sort of gathering gotcha. space. Mm-hmm. Um, so that sort of happened over the last couple of weeks. So now we're basically um, bringing those needs in, um, bringing that um, realisation of, of where Aboriginal people are because one of, the, one of the biggest issues in this whole incident has been... Um, a focus on an area where um, a lot of people have lost their homes, but when the resources are going there, a lot of people aren't there anymore. Right. So it's actually mapping out that Indigenous displacement. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, some people are in Wollongong from further down than Batemans Bay. Some people are in Maru and Naruma. Mm-hmm. Um, the people that have lost their homes have basically lost their place of residency so they're not in the same location anymore so to be able to provide them an um, adequate level of service we need to actually know where they are Mm. (coughs) gotcha well and yeah yeah, so Mm -hmm. i'm sorry so that was just um a a build-up sort of process that was Mm -hmm. the first thing that we sort of did we we connected with all families and communities and mapped out where people were and and then basically went to see them because mm-hmm. there's there's a, a massive amount of work in relation to uh, identifying where people are, mm. and then understanding well what's going on with children, like how do they how are they going to go back to school, and um, you know is there processes for you to get them to school, 
um, and starting a new year is is a very um, complicated thing mm. if you're not in in the same area, you know, because you build up. I'm going to that high school this year, yeah. and oh, you know, okay. and there's that that psychology of building that up and preparing children for that, and then mm. that's all altered. Yeah. So there's a there's a big issue at the moment that yeah we have to try and sort of manage and work through. So. Very, very hectic time, as you said. Yeah, yeah, and I think there's um, there's a lot of there's a lot of uh, of processes in place from the Department of Education and um, other state government institutions where you know they're looking at different processes of engaging with um, displaced people, and like that's not an Indigenous only issue; that's a mm-hmm. more broader issue. Okay. But I think one mm-hmm. of the big issues about like giving um, a lot of the financial aid that they're actually giving out at the moment mm-hmm. is that it's not um, it's not connected with a financial management solution. So mm-hmm. yeah. um, you know what you what you'll tend to see is that a lot of people will just get that money and they'll spend that money and um, there's no sort of process of of following up and, and helping or assisting people to really re-establish themselves on the ground. Throwing money at a problem like this is just not the solution. Mm-hmm. Okay. You've really got to understand that um, it's not a blanket thing that we can do. It's actually going out on the ground, meeting with the affected community and working out a pathway of connecting them back to the, to the things they identify as normal. Right. Yeah. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for that. Thing, um, those points. I mean, First Nation leadership in response to community such an important thing. What do you think the rest of um, community or our, us can kind of learn from the Indigenous crisis response and recoveries successes or like yeah operations? Well, I just think that you know, in in the midst of an absolute um, crisis, you know, we sort of looked at ourselves as the phoenix that rose from these ashes. So we sort of went to um, the affected people on the ground because we ourselves were evacuated. Mm-hmm. We were um, feeling that massive amount of pressure. You know, very luckily we didn't lose our homes, but in doing that, that um, surviving infrastructure became vital um, foundation for the mm. rest of the community to actually connect in with. So we used that. We used that, that survival sort of tactic, I suppose, you know, of the surviving infrastructure, surviving um, organisations mm. and just to lend a hand and do as much as we possibly can. You know, this is years away from completion, Mm. Um, there's a lot more work that needs to be done. Mm-hmm. You know, we're volunteering our time at the moment. We've got a fundraiser on the GoFundMe page under the Indigenous Crisis Response and Recovery to basically build up some financial collateral to get a permanent building space that we can um, store the resources relevant to community engagement in. We can provide a service for um, counselling um, and really start to map out and identify a process um, of healing from that um, displacement because Mm. we've got a lot of background. Aboriginal people have a great fear of of displacement just because of the colonial history. So that fear of 
displacements intergenerational, and the fires themselves now have created a um, massive amount of um, displacement, and, and that's something that we're going to have to be dealing with um, so that the trauma of, of what's happened doesn't become intergenerational and that our babies and that our teenagers and that our kids don't have that ongoing uh, um, problem that's associated with that displacement. So, again, Clive, a, lot, a lot of work. Yeah, again, Clive, thank you so much for coming on. As you said, you are extraordinarily busy, so I appreciate you giving us this interview this morning. Um, Apart from the GoFundMe page, uh, how can we best support Indigenous crisis response and recovery? I've got the Facebook um, page here. Is that the best place to follow you and support? Yeah, the best place to follow us. And I mean, you know, we're we're also very mindful of the fact that you know we're we're involving ourselves um, at a grassroots level. So, mm-hmm. you know, a lot of the people we've been meeting with, um, they don't want to put things on the Facebook. And mm-hmm. I I think that yeah, the Facebook page was. Um, set up just so that the information can be disseminated with our phone numbers and what resources and stuff are available and and just to disseminate that information so people can connect. Mm. Yeah. Fantastic. Well, I'll put that link in the description so people can at least hook into the situation and potentially support in their capacity. Thank you so much for coming on this morning. No worries, and thank you for your time. No, our pleasure. Thanks. And that kind of, I mean, brings us to the, not the end of our show. This is a kind of our wrap-up. So just, we might break down who's been on today. So earlier today, um, we've had Rob with uh, Matul, Professor Matul from RMIT, talking about uh, disaster resilience and what we can learn from India. Really interesting alternative perspective, I always think, um, mm-hmm. to hear. And then we had uh, Professor Stuart Kinner on to talk about, again, contribute further to this youth justice systems conversation. Yeah, and then um, we spoke to Scott Jordan about the logging that's actually just started to occur yesterday in the Tarkine in Tasmania. Bit of an update on that. Mm. And then after, at quarter past eight, we just spoke to Clive Freeman. You just spoke to Clive Freeman (laughs) about the Indigenous crisis response and recovery. Yeah, they've all been pretty amazing issues to tackle Wednesday morning. Yeah. (laughs) It's not not a very chill morning. No, a bit bit, bit hardcore. (laughs) But we need it. Yeah, a bit hardcore. And yeah. again, these all have different, because um, they're all causes and stuff, they all have different fundings mm-hmm. or campaigns going on. So we'll put a link to that in yeah, our description. Yeah, a lot of grassroots sort of community-based stuff that we want everybody to get involved in. So. Yeah, well, I mean, we're a grassroots ourselves. We are. <laughs> so we can't really... Um, no, we can't, we can't lose sight of them, no. We can't lose sight of them, exactly. Um, following it, finishing up with today, Great. what are you grateful for, Jess? <laughs> Instagram filters at the moment. Really? Have you seen them? They're, no. There's some very, um, there's a Pokemon one where, which Pokemon are you? And I'm, uh, yeah, I'm quite grateful for those Instagram filters. I think they're really cute <laughs> and a bit of a, um, a bit of a, it makes my day a bit happy. Bit of an escape. Yeah, though. escape from mm. the media world and, um, yeah, all yeah. the depressing things in life. So it's, it's, it's great. Yeah, I think I'd recommend everyone to go find the which Pokemon are you on Instagram. <laughs> Goodness gracious. I'm going to do a, a quick shout out to primary school. We had this weird little programming in primary school where you get a little electronic sheep jumping across <laughs> your computer screen, desktop. It's a bit weird. It's just a little bit of programming, a little bit of fun. And I rediscovered it on a USB key while cleaning up my files the other day. So you can imagine my uh, computer screen has been full of little tiny sheep. <laughs> Eating, sleeping, and just bouncing. Around yeah, the no. <laughs> Edwin was uh, very excited this morning showing us all, and I, I did love it. So I think the commentary to come out of that though is like, 
there's so much heavy stuff going on, yeah. and we also bring up so much heavy stuff. Uh, it's, it's nice it's, to indulge in the silly things. It's important to recall the Instagram filters and the <laughs> old bouncy you know, sheet. Yeah, bouncy sheet <laughs> and your computer screen. So Absolutely. as dumb as it may sound. Those things are important. And without going into mind, we will close up today's show. Have a lovely Wednesday, mm-hmm. um, I guess, aware Wednesday, but also restful Definitely. Wednesday. Yeah. Get in ready for the rest of the week and all that, and we'll talk to you next week. See ya. 3CR Breakfast would like to thank the New International Bookshop, Melbourne's radical independent bookseller and venue, for their financial support of this program. You can find Nibs in the basement of Trades Hall in Victoria Street, Carlton, or check them out at nibs.org.au to find more information about upcoming discussions and events.